Hey, this is Steve Balton. You turned into my turning point with special guest Natalie Imbruglia. Really love this conversation, so hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Really enjoyed talking with her about her wonderful new album, Firebird, her fandom of Nick Cave, how Joni Mitchell and Tori Amos influenced her, and so much more. Really great conversation. Hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Hi. How's it going? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing very well. All right, hold on, hold on. I'm just positioning this. Hold on. Excellent. Okay. So how's Sorry, it going it's Sam on my thing. I don't know why it's saying Sam. I don't know how to fix it. Does anybody know how to fix that? <laughs> it's all right. You can be Sam for this interview. Okay. <laughs> all right. How's it going, Sam? I'm good. <laughs> Life so is you are good. over in the UK, correct? I'm in Oxfordshire. It just started really raining heavy. It's been okay, though. It was sunny this morning. I don't know. As I said, isn't it supposed to always be like that in the UK? But then I'm in Long Beach, California, so, you know, that's what we think of the UK. Last year, we had an amazing heat wave. Um, But this year has been, you know, we've had about three days (laughs) of sunshine. Three days of heat? Of sunshine, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's tough. (laughs) All right. Well, you know, let's start with that then. It's funny because I talk about this with artists in every interview and this fascinates me. And I'm a very big believer in how environment affects writing. So do you, when you go back and listen to Firebird all the way through, do you hear a lot of Oxfordshire in there? 100%. Yeah. Where I write is very tied to a particular mood. If you think about White Lily's Island, that album, my second album was written. I mean, it's... It's named after the place I was living. So the energy of where I live goes into an album and I kind of do 10 years urban, 10 years isolating in nature, pretty much. Seems to be the vibe. So this is your 10 years isolating in nature? This is my Oxfordshire nature trip. Yeah, for sure. Well, you know, it's interesting because Auden and I were just discussing, right? And, you know, obviously there's a lot of upbeat stuff on this record, but... I also really, it's funny, I was just doing an interview with Jeff Ament from Pearl Jam the other day, and we were discussing the fact that as you get older, you tend to gravitate towards simpler songs. I really love When You Love Too Much. I love the title track. So, you know, when you hear these sort of like uh, softer, more vulnerable songs, do those particularly to you reflect Oxfordshire? 100%. And I think they probably more reflect me (laughs) but you can't have an album full of those kind of songs so I think I'm probably more proud of the up-tempo songs because it's not my natural sensibility I think I lean towards songs like you know the kind of melancholy ballads (laughs) yeah interesting all right so for you when you go back and listen to this are there one or two of the up-tempo songs that you really sort of you know, have a, a stronger appreciation for because they are not typically you. And it, it's funny. I mean, if you go through history, right, there's the debate about whether it's easier or harder to write a happy song. And 
there's not that many freaking great happy songs. So before we come on to your songs, wait, I'm going to put you on the spot. Your two or three <laughs> favorite happy songs from other people. I would say Get Lucky, Pharrell. Because it just puts me in that kind of happy dancing state of mind. But, you know, I'm a bit more of a Nick Cave kind of girl, so I can't think of any others off the top of my head. <laughs> All right. Nick Cave is one of my musical heroes and probably the best freaking live performer on the planet today. So what, what are the one or two favorite Nick Cave songs then? Oh, my God. Um, Boatman's Call, probably. <laughs> when was the last time you saw him live? You what? When was the last time you saw him live? Um, I saw him at Shepherd's Bush Empire, but it was with his other band. What are they called again? So it wasn't the Bad Seeds then, it was the other band. Yes. But he's amazing. He's very sexy on stage. You know, it's such a funny thing because this has come up as well. And, you know, look, Nick Cave never used to be the rock god. And then somewhere in the last few years... It just came up that like all of a sudden everybody was like, oh my, well, I mean, when I saw him at the Greek theater here in LA a few mm-hmm. years ago, Brad Pitt was hanging up backstage, Shirley Manson, like he's just become like, oh, when I saw him do this really cool Q&A event here in LA at UCLA, or I'm sorry, it was at Disney Hall, uh, Brad Pitt and Chris Martin were sitting in the row in front of us. And it's like, you know, Nick Cave used to be this amazing counterculture guy. And then somewhere over the time, it just shifted to where he became like the rock God. And it's an interesting thing because how this can tie back in. It's amazing how, when you sort of stick around long enough, and I noticed this with Leonard Cohen too, eventually, if you just stick around long enough, you'll be like, Oh shit, you've made it this long. (laughs) And you know, you're elevated to this new stature and in both their cases, very deserve it. But it's funny. Do you find then for you with firebird now coming back, and having been away for a while, first of all, people miss you. That's just the nature of it. Second of all, you know, the fact that you've put so much of yourself into this album and it is vulnerable and you are open, are you finding a different response to it than maybe what you expected? You know, you never know how it's going to play out. I definitely think you earn your stripes um, at a certain point in time if you're still doing it and you're doing it good enough. Um, I feel still people aren't mugs. So if the music's not good enough, they're going to tell you. (laughs) So, you know, it has to be both of those things happening at the same time. I think that before I even got a response from this record, I was so confident that I'd done good work that I didn't really care. And that's a really nice thing to get to a point in your life where, you know, I, I do it because I love communicating my truth. I tried to go away from it. I studied acting for two years. I think my gift is communicating emotion. It's not even about being the best at this or the best at that. I think that there's a place for me in where I go to with my particular voice and the way I tell a story that people resonate with, you know? Um, And so that's who I make my music for. You're not going to, not everyone's going to like what you do. Um, but I definitely feel that, you know, probably a lot of the difficult times I've gone through to have things to write about is what made this album great. And that's the beautiful thing about life is that, 
you know, sometimes for me, I got dropped by my my label. Well, they didn't. They kind of shelved the record. They only put an album out in Australia and New Zealand. And at that time, it was a very very difficult time. Probably sparked my writer's block. But I'm sitting here now, going, if I hadn't gone through all of that, I don't know that Firebird would even exist. So. Life is okay. I think it's good to have peaks and troughs in your career. I think it makes you a more fully rounded person. <laughs> um, I don't know. I think there's a lot of people out there who haven't had those ups and downs. Well, I think the other thing that's natural about it, and we're going to come back to your upbeat songs on this record in a second. I did not forget about that. But it's interesting. The other thing about that is, look, when you have, you know, as you put it, peaks and valleys, Obviously, what happens along the way is it gives you a different appreciation. So I'm sure, you know, that for you, having gone through some of those valleys, right now you are enjoying things much more. Is that the case? Oh, gosh, yeah. I mean, I'm just blissed out. I think the writer's block was so real for me that when I, that confidence of going, I can do this. I'm actually quite good at this. I love this. And, you know, owning that, it just... I was in such flow that by the time I was working with Romeo again and like I was just in flow. So then I could just do no wrong. And then I was like called up Egg White. I'm like, we need to write, we need to write. So I end up, you know, it was just an incredibly um, easy creative period. But what's funny is that about getting in flow is that it's, it's, it's your own mind that you have to kind of overcome, isn't it? Um, it's getting yourself into the headspace where you can just let things flow. And I don't quite know how I did that. I suppose 10 days in Nashville kind of busted that out of me. And also being willing to write some shit songs, you know, and, and, and be aware that they're leading to a breakthrough. I think that takes confidence and courage to apply it as a discipline as well. The other thing too, look, I talk about this with artists all the time, right? As you get older too, you just get into more of that mentality of, you know, I don't give a shit. I'm going to do whatever. And the other thing too is obviously I talk about this with friends as well. Being a parent changes everything for you because all of a sudden, you know, things like, well, what someone thinks about the song just seems so inconsequential. So you <laughs> feel like those also, both those things happening freed you up yeah. musically to a, what's that? hundred percent. You're busy trying to keep a human being alive and make sure they're okay and fed and, you know, get some sleep in between. And it's um, probably the best thing that's ever happened to me. And it is a great leveler. It certainly uh, puts things in perspective. Uh, it made me write better songs. I think some of the happy up-tempo songs are 100% inspired by that unconditional love that I was experiencing. I was doing a lot of writing while I was pregnant. And I was, you know, I just posted a picture of me. I was recording up until a month before Max was born and then continued doing my vocals and stuff. So that whole process definitely freed me out, if that's the right way of saying it, because I was just so happy. And I think happiness is is catching, you know, it's contagious. And it kind of, it just made everything a little bit more joyful for me. Well, all right. So now that you've segued it back in nicely to the happy upbeat songs, let's tie that in. And, <laughs> you know, one or two of the ones that you look back on now, because look, all right, I talk about this with artists all the time too. When you're making a record, you're in the midst of it. You know, you don't always have perspective. So you go back and you hear things and especially, you know, good writing being subconscious, but okay. 
you factor in the fact as well that you were pregnant. I'm sure there were, you know, a lot of things happening at once. So when you go back and listen to this record, are there things that, that really surprise you that you're like, okay, I didn't even realize I was thinking that. But when you go back, you have a really like, you know, you just appreciate it in a different way because, you know, if an album is a snapshot of a time, well, this is an, this is a snapshot of a very important time in your life then. A hundred percent. I think what it feels like really encapsulated for me that feeling of, uh, you know, being pregnant and blissing out and just feeling super happy. I mean, that's a very joyful, upbeat, happy, happy song. <laughs> but when that second verse kicks in and there's that harmony on that, oh, I love it. It makes me happy, you know, and it's hard for me to write songs like that. I'm a melancholy person. So I think, you know, and on my ways, just so sit back in your chair and like easy, happy summertime song. So I'm really proud to, to write songs like that because I find them a lot harder. Well, that's interesting, though. Now, you say you're a melancholy person, but now do you still consider yourself a melancholy person or has that evolved as well? Yeah, I think I'll always be, I'll, I'll always have that dark side to my personality. I don't think it's by choice. I don't think it's something that I have the time or the inclination to indulge anymore. I think when I was younger, um, especially being a creative person, you could indulge those feelings and maybe have those periods last longer or you know, I, I think when you have a child, you, you you don't really want to. It's more about pulling yourself out of it or kind of falling apart as quickly as you can so that you can be present and be a good parent. It's just such a great thing to have something more important than yourself to be focusing on. I mean, just as a, as, as, just as a human thing, as an, a life experience, I mean, how great is that? And I remember yearning for that. I was like, my life is been very selfish. Now what? You know, like I don't just want it to be always about me. I'm, I'm kind of, I live away from my family. I have this life. I'm very independent. And for a long time, there was that yearning. Um, and so it's made my work better. I mean, I feel like I can't wait to write the next album. I've got more than five songs that didn't make this album just because I had too many. I mean, 14's long for an album. Um, I wanted 12, but I couldn't get it down to 12. <laughs> um, I still make albums as if, you know, I know what the whole thing is you put a single out and then you put a single out. But for me, I still approach it old school because I'm old. <laughs> all right, well, let's go back then. I'm curious for you then, because no, I agree with you. And when I listen to things, I listen to them all the way through, you know, and, and you know, because I'm old as well. But when you go back <laughs> to being a kid, those one or two, first albums that you listen to all the way through and that even when you're putting together, you know, Firebird now and looking at sequencing and telling a story, what are sort of the benchmark albums for you that take you through a whole journey from start to finish? I don't reference them for my own sequencing, but the first album that sprang to mind, which was when I was living in Melbourne and just getting into music was Tori Amos, Little Earthquakes. I mean, Joni Mitchell, Court and Spark. Um, I love... Ricky Lee Jones' Rainbow Sleeves, which was an EP. I don't know if you've heard that one. But just, I just love storytelling songs. I mean, Joni Mitchell, I mean, people's parties, you know. I'm just yeah. in the room and I'm seeing everything that she's seeing and 
I remember going to um, France and staying at Hotel Cost and thinking about being in Paris and imagining I was Joni and I'm like, I wonder if she stayed at this hotel and wrote that song sitting here. And, you know, these artists have a big impact on you and it's, it's a beautiful thing to be able to do that. I'm not saying that putting myself in the league of those people, but it's, um, it made me love those kind of journey albums, you know, for me, um, songs didn't make this album because subject wise, they were way too off piece. And I'm like, well, you can't follow that song from that song. And it doesn't fit there. It's like, for me, the track listing chooses itself because you start piecing them all together. And I usually cut them out in bits of paper and put them on a table and, and then I'm looking at it and I'm listening to it and it's, it's really obvious when it's not working or if it suddenly goes to some random other subject, my brain can't cope. So I think it's just a personal thing. Well, that's interesting for you then when you go back then and like you say, it kind of tells it, you know, the track listing dictates itself. So when you go back and look at this track listing, what is the story that it tells you from Build It Better through Firebird? Do you see a through line through this whole album? I don't know if I did the sequencing actually in order of events of my life and what the stories are about, because it starts with build it better, you know, but sometimes if you think about build it better, it's about (sighs) don't put a brave face on it, you know, just accept that everything's falling apart and believe that, you know, you can, you can be in a better situation and live in a better way and feel better. And so for me, that was so poignant and that, that's the first track on the album because it's like the overarching theme of Phoenix Out of the Ashes. And I think there'd been so many different situations in my life that I'd been going through. It's almost like I needed to tell myself that. So even though it was one of the earlier songs, I don't know if I'm sitting here now going, well, I've, I've had that experience now. But when you write the song, you're not necessarily there yet. So sometimes these songs are about a place you're trying to get to, not a place you're already at. But, you know... Yeah, I'm looking at the track listing now and I'm thinking there's not a specific timeline apart from the fact that Firebird, the title track, was the last song to be written. So the album wasn't called Firebird till the last minute and it was when we were doing the creative for the artwork with Simon Proctor, who I think is a genius, and I was talking him through the album. He was living with the songs and I was like, you know, it's kind of like I'm Phoenix out of the ashes. And we were talking about that. And he said, Firebird. And I'm like, well, I'm a Firebird. And then I was like, shit, I want to call the album Firebird, but I don't have the song. So I rang up Romeo Stoddard and I'm like, no pressure, dude. We have to write the title track in 24 hours. Come to my house. So he came out and in two days we wrote this song. And um, yeah, and I was trying to think of, it was a hard one because, you know, when you're writing under pressure, And there were so many different themes because it's to do with strength and fragility and finding that balance. So I was thinking, is this a song for my son? Like, what is this song? And then the second day, so the first day was a bit of a struggle. The second day, uh, it was my friend's funeral and she'd lost her her battle. Um, She had two stage four cancers and she was a force of life. And, um, And I lit a candle and I asked her to help me write the song. And it just, I mean, I literally, it just all flowed out of me. And I think in the sadness of her passing and thinking about her crossing over and all of that went into the song. Um, So that was a really special one. And I think quite poignant that it was the last one that I wrote and that it's the title track. So I'm rambling. I don't know what I'm saying. 
No, that's okay. It's interesting. You said a lot in there that's very interesting. And it's, I mean, when you go back then and listen to the title track and you think of your friend, I mean, you know, it's interesting because, look, I've been doing this book where I've been talking with artists about the greatest songs of all time. And it's remarkable how often, like I was just interviewing Edge from U2 about one last week and how often, you know, songs that, that have like a significant, you know, they'll just come sort of channeling out, you know, for lack of a better term. So do you feel that with Firebird? And then do you feel your friend in there when you go back and listen to the song? And does it make it that much more special to you? A hundred percent. It's dedicated to her on the album, but I also hear her screaming at me that she wish I wrote an uptempo song. (laughs) She was like a real force in nature. So she would, you know, I think if she had it her way, the title track would be a much happier song, but... I definitely think she wanted a full name dedication, so she got it. You know, she she lived her life. The one beautiful thing about that is that I don't listen to that song and think about her and think, oh, she didn't live her life to the full. So she was inspiring, but it's also about, that song's also about coming home to yourself as well, you know, and being on the edge and I always fly home, you know, I always come back to myself. Right. So there's so many... I mean, I learned from my own songs. They fly out of you at the time, you, then you analyze them later. You're not necessarily consciously. When I write, I work, walk in circles. I can't sit on a chair and come up with melodies. I literally have my dictaphone in my hand. So if I'm writing with someone, they have a tiny little room. I'm like, shit, how am I going to do my circles? Like I need to walk. Um, I tend to pace around the room a lot and hide with my dictaphone until I think I've jammed some good melodies and then sit back down and everyone's got their different processes, but, um, I like to walk. <laughs> By the way, I love the fact though, that you said, uh, going back to talking about Firebird in the writing process and how you were saying that, you know, um, how'd you put it that, that sometimes you write about, uh, Oh, you're talking about build it better. And sometimes you're writing about what it is you want. I think yeah. that's what you said. Yes, and it's absolutely. so funny because, um, you know, I talk with artists all the time about how songs become prophetic, how you'll write something and then a year later, you're surprised at how relevant it is. And it was actually Nick Cave who explained it best to me. And he was saying that you often write as an artist, you write what it is you're longing for. So he was saying that, you know, he'll write happy songs when he's depressed and sad songs when he's happy. And he was saying like, you know, uh, Into My Arms, which is, you know, one of the 10 most beautiful songs ever. He was saying, he told me that that was written in a church while he was strung out. No. Yeah. Yeah, because, but it's interesting for you then when you go back, do you now see that in your music that, you know, when it becomes prophetic or, you know, that in fact there is that you're writing for, like you said, you're writing what it is that you need to hear. So when you go back and listen to this, what are the messages that you take in 2021 that you needed to hear from 2020 or 2019 or 2018? Well, I'm kind of now in a place where, I mean, I have built it better. So for me, for me, it all worked out, you know? And I think it's so weird. It's like I wrote this theme tune to a pandemic before a pandemic. It's quite bizarre. Um, And it was important for me for that to be the first song because um, I think I was, going through a breakup and there was a lot of changes in my life. And I was, you know, looking at being a single parent, there was all this stuff going on. And so that song was written before all of that, which is quite cool, you know, and I'm sitting here now as a mom 
with this beautiful body of work feeling like that actually happened, you know? So if you can't get there in the moment, you can try write about it for sure. I can see where Nick Cave's coming from. And Into My Arms, oh my gosh, that song. Yeah. yeah and it's funny though. It, like, I, hopefully I didn't like taint the song for you telling you that you told me that because, you know, like, again, I think mm-hmm. that's so fascinating. The idea of as an artist that you're sort of, you know, it's self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. Fake it till you make it sometimes as well, you know? Yeah. All right. Sometimes. So, you know, it's funny. One of the things about this record, as we talked about, is the versatility, but you're particularly, you know, proud of the, the upbeat songs, as you say. So, you know, when I think of these upbeat songs, like what it feels like and stuff, you know, obviously I'm imagining the stage and, you know, hopefully it's so funny because I've done thousands of interviews during COVID, you know, where you could talk, you couldn't talk about playing them live. Now we're nearing that point where fingers crossed, you can imagine playing these songs live. So are there touring plans for the record or plans to do, you know, even like a few one-off shows? And if so, what are the songs from this record you're most excited to bring to the stage and see how people respond to them? Well, that's the thing. I mean, my band is chomping at the bit. We're so excited because they've heard the album. They're like, oh, there's so many things. I mean, the good thing about being in this position is you get to a place where you have so many albums to choose from so you can tailor make it like that. But it's nice that it's not a problem I've had in the past. There's too many mid-tempos and, you know, it can just be energy-wise a struggle because um, I love mid-tempos, but when you're doing the live thing, sometimes you want to have some more energy. So it's wonderful that I have those songs to draw on. But, you know, just like old times, I mean, that, I'm digging that. Songs like that on the album are... That's one of my favorite songs. Um, I love Human Touch. I love Change of Heart. I think they'll work live as well, and they're not necessarily. The Romeo stuff's really special to me. I think we have a really good songwriting relationship, and I'm such a fan of his. And, you know, he, he shares my love of Fleetwood Mac and wanting to have those little influences in there. And, um, you know, the intricacies of those songs. I don't know. He just brings his own, this magic sensibility to the songs. Um, you know, Change of Heart sounds like you're on a train at the start of it with that, like, piano, two notes happening. And Human Touch, I think we were talking about Eckhart Tolle. I think I was explaining to him about Eckhart Tolle standing on a bridge about to jump off and going to kill himself until he realized he's not the voice in his head. And we literally talked about that for a day and then human touch just kind of popped out. <laughs> so it's funny. Just the, the confidence to allow yourself to chat and, you know, just get into each other's vibe. And that to me makes a better song because the songs are all there. It's just about, I don't know, I just... More and more I come unprepared and it works out better. Well, I think that's also something that as you get older, and this goes back to confidence too, is like, you know, you you have the confidence because also you've done it so many times, you know, that you know that this can happen. And also you learn to, as you get older, I think, trust your instincts as well. So do you find that that was the case with making this record as well? That in terms of, you know, the idea of coming in unprepared, that it allows you to just be like, okay, well, cool. I'm, I'm prepared, but I've also written, you know, 35 songs that I'm proud of. So if I come in unprepared, you know, who gives a shit? Something will come out of it. And by the way, if that one day you don't come up with anything, 
you also don't stress out like, oh my God, I'm a failure because I didn't do it today. You know, you know that tomorrow you'll have something. Yeah, I just allow the process to be in. Like one day can be completely opposite to the next day. I have days, like I had a day with Romeo where I was stressing out because I hadn't written in ages and I'm like, I'm not feeling it today. I'm not feeling it today. Maybe it's the full moon. I was having a panic attack and he's like, Nat, we don't have to write today. And then the next day, I mean, I was in such flow. I, he couldn't keep up with the melodies that I was singing. So there's definitely a confidence in getting to a place of caring less, but also trusting the process and, and knowing that, I don't know, whenever I used to turn up with homework, because I'm very studious and I wanted to like do my part, I'm then trying to squeeze some poem into music that's literally being created in that moment. And it it's, it's stifling. And I think it's the opposite of what songwriting is meant to be, because you're kind of meant to be on the fly and just going with the flow. And so walking around in my little circles and seeing what happens. So um, that's why I don't prepare anymore. Our last couple questions, but one, as a massive Fleetwood Mac fan, what's the dream Fleetwood Mac song to have written? I mean, and this, by the way, is a tough question because I, I asked this, this came up in an interview once and then I posted this on Facebook. You know, what's fascinating is you've got three such distinct, brilliant songwriters in that band. That's what makes it such an interesting question because, you know, first it's like, it's not only the song, but then do you gravitate to Stevie or Christine or Lindsay? Well, I have a song. It's actually not on my album, but I, I mean, Landslide for me is so way up there. Because, you know, that's my vibe. That's the kind of song I would like to be able to write. That is one of the 10 greatest songs ever written. Yeah. I mean, all their songs are phenomenal. I mean, it's a very hard question. But, you know, I have gone into to writing sessions and going, what about something like that? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, oh, they're just incredible, aren't they? They are. And it's funny. I think one of the things I appreciate about them is it's, you know, like Landslide is just, it's unequivocally, like you can't even argue. It's me. One of the 10 greatest songs ever written, but mm -hmm. then you go back and it's like every so often uh, I'll appreciate Christine songs like Songbird. And it's like, dude, if that was not written in Fleetwood Mac and sometimes could be overshadowed by some of the bigger songs, Songbird is a freaking perfect song. It is a perfect song. It is a perfect song. That's a very good point, actually. I mean, yeah, their track record was pretty spectacular. Yeah, no question. Mm -hmm. All right. So, so wait, have you ever covered Landslide or will you ever? No. I just love it as an inspiration for when I'm songwriting. Yeah. All right. So mm -hmm. is there a Fleetwood Mac song then that you would cover that you, and I get that sometimes there's songs that are so perfect to you. I like, could not touch Fleetwood Mac. I could never cover one of those songs. <laughs> it's never happening. <laughs> it's like makes me nervous thinking about it. All right. Yeah, the other one that I gravitate to is Silver Springs. To... Oh my God, that is an amazing song. Say again, sorry? Silver Springs. Oh my gosh. You've got good taste. <laughs> Thank you. Well, <laughs> you know, I, I was excited to talk to you. So I think, Aww, yes, I do have good taste. So but yeah. So, all right. So, so now, as you say, the band is chomping at the bit. But are there actual plans right now to play live or is it just kind of a wait and see? And the other thing about it too, I also understand, look, man, it's so different when you have a kid as well, because, 
you know, that again is priority. And I look at someone like one of my musical heroes is Patti Smith. And I think when you look at her taking 17 years off to raise a family, how freaking badass was she that she's just like, I don't care that I just played to 80,000 people in Rome. This is more important to me. She's amazing. Look, I'm going to tour because I love touring and it's not like I tour for long enough chunks that I couldn't do it as a, as a mom. So we have, we have a, a show around album release in September. Um, we are, you know, we are talking about doing a tour next year. So it, it's pandemic dependent. <laughs> but, you know, if we can, I'm going to be on the road around April, but there's nothing set in stone. We have, we have to just wait and see. Yeah, no question. And I, I just, I mean, how can I not want to do that? It's, I love right, that. When was the last time you played LA, by the way? Oh, gosh, I don't even remember. All I right, don't so remember the last time I played LA. I would love to, I, you know, I stupidly didn't tour my first record in the States, kind of screwed myself over there. Bad advice on the management front. Um, <laughs> I took a holiday when I should have been touring America. <laughs> but hey, ho, you live and learn. Exactly. I mean, you're in a different place now anyway. So, you know, but where is the dream place to play in LA or the place you haven't played yet? Uh, Of course, I'm making this LA centric because that's where I am. The Troubadour, of course. All right. I mean, last time I remember seeing Radiohead and Prince the same night at the Troubadour. That was pretty epic. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I saw James Taylor and Carol King there. That was amazing. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, there, there, there's been a lot of great moments there. There's a Wednesday night at two in the morning where I saw Mumford and Sons playing with Tom Morello and Mark Hoppus came out with them. And this was two in the morning on a Wednesday night. It's a oh pretty memorable God. place. It's just a magical place, isn't it? All right, so wait, last question on this and then we'll wrap up on the album. But, you know, given all these special, you know, sort of surprise appearances we've seen there and everything, who would be your dream artist to do a duet with at the Troubadour? Oh my God. Your dream guest artist to come out. That's so hard. Oh. I'd probably get just one of my co-writers to come on stage with me, to be honest. Be that Katie Tunstall or Albert Hammond Jr. or Bell Saint. I mean, you know that song, Dive to the Deep, on my album we wrote in 08. So there's so much material that people don't know about, and I went back to that song and I'm like, there's something here. And I rang her up and I'm like, can I put our song on my album? She was really excited. So maybe I'd get her to come play with me. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It's funny. I mean, how, how sometimes this, that goes back to the prophetic though, as well, is that a song that you wrote in 08, as you said, because for this album, right. For Firebird, you were, you were trying to make it stuff that fit together. So did it surprise you to find that a song from 08 fit on the album? Not really. I mean, I know what it's about, so I won't go into that, but, you know, themically it worked, and I think the vibe of that song, that song to me is like happening underwater. You know, everything's kind of visual, and I just feel like there was a place on the album for that song. They just have to roll into each other, and they have to make sense together, even if they're... And the beautiful thing about My Riot was they were able to take, you know, a song from 08 and the songs that I'd written written with them and, and, and put it, piece it all together and make it all make sense. They have really good electronic sounds that sound organic as well. Cause I'm really, I've got a funny, it has to be the right electronic sounds. Otherwise it freaks me out. It has to feel, it has to sit nice with 
the live band stuff. So um, they were the perfect choice for me. Cool. Last question. But when you go back and listen to this album all the way through, as mm-hmm. we talked about it being a snapshot of a very you know important time in your life, you know, what do you take from this record from start to finish? What do you take when you hear it all the way through? I'm just blissed out happy. I'm so ridiculously proud of it. And um, I kind of am patting myself on the back. I still can't <laughs> believe I did it. I'm just super happy, super proud. And it's nice. It's nice to go into an album campaign feeling this happy and confident with what I've produced regardless of an outcome. I mean, that's just the goal, isn't it? I, I don't really care. It's like I, I love it. <laughs> so, and it seems that other people are responding to it and that's really, really lovely, but I'd already got to, I was just super happy with it. I don't know if I've ever been kind of that sure of myself and that's a nice feeling, you know? Well, it's interesting too. And I said last question, but you know, just for me as a fan, I have to ask, cause I think it's also really cool that you said you're already, you know, excited to write the next record. And, you know, I talked about this, look, I got to interview in the span of a few years, Matt Johnson from the, Though, one of my favorite bands of all time took 17 years off. I mentioned Patti Smith. I interviewed Steve Perry from journey, you know, one of the greatest singers of all time. He didn't make an album for 20 years. You know, and there's something about coming back to it on your terms that just frees you up so much, but you also feel so excited. So do you feel like in a sense, like a new artist and that this is just sort of a beginning of a career for you versus like, oh, okay, I haven't made a record in 12 years and now I'm going away for another 10. Well, every time I come out with an album, I'm called, it's called a comeback. I don't think I've ever put out an album and I haven't said, where have you been? So I just feel like I'm forever coming back. <laughs> <laughs> it's this weird thing where if you don't release material every year, they say, what's happened? And I'm like, well, nothing's happened. A whole bunch of lives happened. But I don't have this burning desire to feel the need to produce, produce, produce. I'm not a robot. It would be great if my process was faster because I'd be filling bigger rooms and I'd make more money. But I'm not driven by money, so that kind of screws that one up. And, you know, it takes me a long time to write a song that I think is good. So, uh I just think genuinely that this is a good body of work. So it is nice that, you, you know, people are kind of ready to hear it as well because I don't, I'm not oversaturated because I haven't been around and in people's face. It's always nice, isn't it? Yeah. No, I meant more for you though, just in the sense of like not, um, you know, not in the sense of like, oh my God, I need to do this for the people, but for you, as you write it and you write a record that you're proud of, mm-hmm. you know, so you're like, okay, now I'm excited to just keep my creative momentum going because I'm excited to keep writing and putting out music. Oh yeah. That's why I want to do it. I mean, I just, it's been so much fun and it's the difference between having an experience where, you know, you're trying just as hard, but it's swimming upstream to where you're in flow. And because I've had that experience, obviously I don't want it to stop. So I'm keen to just not have there be a really big chunk where I'm touring and I haven't been in the creative process and just keep it, keep it going. Cause it's been, you know, if, if it could stay like this, I'd be super happy. Cool. So what else do you want to add that I did not ask you about? Um, I'm not one for adding. I had a really great chat with you. Thank you so much for um, asking good questions. <laughs> And I can tell you love music and it's just, it's just nice to do an interview like this. So thank you. Well, thanks. No, it was a pleasure. And actually it's funny. We spoke so many years ago. I couldn't even tell you when, but you know, 
well, as soon as I got the email about it, I was like, oh, hell yes, I'm looking forward Aww. to it. So it was a great Thank pleasure to so catch much. up. And I'm excited that, you know, you're on, co- I don't even know what comeback this is in air quotes, but, you know, <laughs> I'm excited that this has come back, whatever. And hopefully, you know, it's not another 15 years before we get to speak again. Yeah, that would be great. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you so much. Cool. Have a good one. Thanks. Bye. Hey, this is Steve Balton. You've been listening to My Turning Point with special guest Natalie Rulia. And when it's time to go, you know that I'll take flight. Oh, yeah. Ooh, let me fly. Why choose proven quality sleep from Sleep Number? Because our Sleep Number 360 smart bed is really smart. It senses your movement and automatically adjusts to help keep you both comfortable. Plus, it's temperature balancing so you stay cool. It's even smart enough to know exactly how long, how well, and when you slept. And to help you get almost 30 minutes more restful sleep per night. Sleep Number takes care of the science. All you have to do is sleep. And now, during our Memorial Day sale, save $1,000 on the Sleep Number 360 Special Edition Smart Bed Queen, now only $19.99, only for a limited time. To learn more, go to sleepnumber.com. When you look into Discover Student Loans, what you see might surprise you. We can help cover your college costs, don't charge you fees, and give you cash rewards for good grades. Ready to apply? Visit discoverstudentloans.com. Limitations apply. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.